Put some on the hundred. Ladies and gentlemen, kindly mute yourselves. You mute it. Everyone, please mute. It's good to see Carlita on and Elizabeth. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, sir. Here I am. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, wherever you're joining us from, Assalamu alaikum, shalom, shanti, and peace be each and every one of you. I, I have moved to the weekly conversation and weekly webinar to my own One Love podcast to be broadcasted on Spotify, which I was doing way before during the pandemic. And uh, I have uh, moved from uh, Muslim Food Bank to my own organization that I registered last week, One Love Family Services. And um, hopefully that I can continue doing the food hampers and continue interviewing our incredible uh, leaders around the world and continue to inspire others, including the work in the prison. Um, so thank you for joining me. And um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, wherever you're joining us, this is our One Love podcast. And we have with us an amazing brother, interfaith leader, activist, writer, humanitarian, and an imam and many other accolades that we will hope to listen to in this evening. So welcome, Munib Nasir. How have you been during COVID? Uh, thank you, uh, Habib. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Peace be with you. Um, I've been fine. And uh, first, uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, this invitation to have this conversation. I know you've been after me for a while for this. Um, and I know this area of interfaith and chaplaincy and uh, food insecurity is a passion for you. So it's my pleasure to join you tonight and to, to have this conversation on uh, you know community work and community development as well as interfaith work. So thank, thank you, you once again for inviting me. Thank you, Maniv. You've been very humble and kind, knowing that you're one of the pioneers here in Toronto coming from Guyana you would have had some kind of a upbringing um, in Guyana with your parents at school that would have exposed you to your humanitarian work, exposed you to your interfaith activism, interfaith dialogue, and of course your writing at Ikra and um, on the Muslim um, uh, famous Islamic uh, city, is it islamiccity.com? Uh, about Islam. About Islam.com, yeah. etc. So I want our listeners to hear what really was the stories growing up that helped inspire the person you have become today. Well, as you know, as you mentioned, I am from Guyana. And, um, you know, Guyana is a very multi-religious, multi-racial society. And those of us who have grown up in that uh, um, environment, you know, we are accustomed to uh, interacting and uh, you know um, living among various religious groups, but um, you know that got uh, in many ways has equipped us uh, to live in this society because it's a very westernized or western society, very much uh, a multiracial, multi-religious society where each religion is given equal space, and a lot of this has to do with our foreparents as well, 
who worked very hard um, in um, you know, establishing various religious uh, organizations and groups in the country and getting recognition from the governments. So although the Muslim community is very small in Guyana, maybe 10%, you know, we have equal footing in the country in terms of recognition. Um, you know, Guyana has, you know, each, each religion has two uh, national holidays, which is quite exceptional when you think about it. Yes. Um, that it's recognized and everyone, you know, appreciates uh, each other's religion. As far as my background is concerned, you know, I grew up in a very um, uh, uh, big and religious family. Yes. Who have done uh, tremendous work for the last uh, maybe 100 years uh, in Guyana and in the West Indies as well. So I grew up in that sort of um, environment where religious activism was uh, part of my upbringing. And when I came here as well, you know, I came to this uh, Toronto as a teenager. Um, but I grew up in a home that was very active in the Muslim community here. So that sort of equipped me in terms of. Um, um, you know, voluntary work, public service, and it's sort of ingrained in you from a young age, right, to, to be active. So that, I'm you know, that, you that, said, that I'm glad you said it's ingrained in you from a young age, and you don't say you yeah. were disciplined, you know, given the fact <laughs> of our, our parents were disciplined us if we don't, you know, say good morning to our neighbor, or we don't, you know, do the necessary when the stranger comes. Um, but what was your education in Guyana and uh, did you have any challenges that you have overcome that you could share with our listeners? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up in uh, pre-colonial times, meaning that I grew up in Guyana in the 60s and early 70s. So I went to high school in Guyana. Um, I went to Central High School. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, briefly before I came here, because after I finished my what would be equivalent to grade 12, which in Guyana was the O-levels. I briefly went to Queen's College, actually, oh, for a few months you're before... You're um, <laughs> your alumni, yes. Um, before I came here, um, and I completed my grade 13, which would be the equivalent of A-levels here. Um, so that education, which is very much, a, you know, was a, a Eurocentric, but British education. Um, and it was in, you know, this was before Ghana became independent. We became independent in 66. And I entered high school in 67. Um, and, you know, we're still sort of struggling to get out of that sort of colonial mentality. Yes. Um, and of course, Ghana was going through difficult times. You know, the 60s was not an easy time. There were a lot of uh, interracial difficulties there was, um, you know, the influence of the uh, superpowers, essentially the Americans and the British, in the affairs, in the political affairs of Guyana, yes. and that uh, impacted as well the the religious um, organizations. You know, religious organization had to be aligned with one of the political parties, yes. and this was where essentially religion, religious organizations became so much in, corrupted and influenced into the politics of, of the country, which was unfortunate at the time. And to some extent, it took many decades before that was extracted out of the, you know, those were the days, as you may remember, uh, of the United Southern Islamic Organization, yes. which was uh, predated uh, CIOG. Um, so these, uh, you know, these were difficult times. It was not easy, but as a teenager growing up, you know, it was not, you know, it was not our concern, my concern. You know, it was, I was still, you know, um, under the wings of my parents and such. So it was. Nice. I see <laughs> playing, playing cricket at Borda. 
Yeah. <laughs> now, what's your uh, migration story to Canada, and what's uh, where where did you end up um, uh, in terms of uh, education and career uh, here in Canada? Well, when I came, you know, as most immigrants, you know, we always have this desire to go back. You know, most immigrants when they come to this country, they yeah, say, "Oh, they're gonna stay, stay here for three years." So you can get rid of the homesickness. Yeah, so it takes about three to five years to get it out of our system. Um, so when I came here, I completed high school, and then I went to the University of Toronto um, in the sciences, the biological sciences. Wow! And then I transferred to the University of Guelph into um, the Ontario Agricultural College, um, OUC. Um, um, because my intention was at the time uh, was to go back to Guyana. So I studied agriculture and when I ended up at Guelph, there were many West Indians because it was a very international university. Right. You know, it was uh, uh, having um, students from Asia, the Middle East. Um, they had a, a, a number of cohorts from uh, the West Indies, Trinidad and Guyana and Jamaica as well. So it was a very international sort of environment. And many of the Guyanese who came there, some were on scholarship from the government, and some came with the desire to um, get educated into that field and to go back to either, um, you know, to their home countries. But of course, you know, things became very bad, as you know, in the 80s in Guyana. Oh, yes. And most of those graduates um, remained here. Um, they never went back to Guyana, although they were educated in a field that would have benefited the country, but because of the sort of dictatorial rule of the government at the time, uh, most of these graduates remained here and they became quite uh, accomplished in various fields. Uh, and I some think of them remained. You, I think, I think yeah. that has inspired you as your stay here in Toronto to be part of the wider Guyanese diaspora advocating for democracy in Guyana. Is that so? And uh, do, there, there is always that question, especially as an interfaith uh, advocate, that how does um, democracy play into faith? How does that, how, how you know, as some people say, well, is that halal? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, uh, and this brings the question of, you know, the Guyanese community in the 70s was very small, as, as the Muslim community was. And, you know, we are, you know, the immigration policies in Canada was just changing. To allow people from from Africa and Asia, the non-white community essentially, yes. to become immigrants here. So there was uh, at the time a very small uh, West Indian community in Toronto, a small Guyanese community, as well as the Muslim community was very small. We only had in Toronto, you know, we had essentially three three sort of uh, designated mosques. Right. You know, there was the um, Albanian uh, Center on Annette Street, which is on Dundas. There was the, uh, the Jami Mosque, which had just gone through some very difficult uh, times, and the Islamic Foundation, which was on the uh, Coxwell and Gerard, which is in the Indian Bazaar area. Uh, those were the three mosques, and the community was very small. So people were, you know, who came here were basically from the West Indies, those who left out of their own free will. Essentially, they were middle, middle class people who were educated and who had the means to come here and escape the, uh, the difficult times in Guyana. So the, commu the Guyanese community was quite different. It was mostly uh, the Portuguese community, the Chinese community from the Guyanese uh, you know, diaspora um, who came here in the 70s. 
And then later on, you know, more uh, people of Indian background came as well as the African background. But, um, you know, it was people at the time was essentially fleeing from a, a government that was becoming very repressive. And this was this sort of the first uh, brain drain from Guyana as such, right? Because those who went to Britain were essentially, you know, workers. But the first brain drain happened in Toronto um, in the sense that most of the, uh, the doctors came here. Most of the lawyers came here. Uh, so very well-known lawyers came here. Yeah. And they settled in Toronto. Um, so, you know, and these were educated uh, mostly in Britain, uh, in North America, these doctors and lawyers, right? So um, uh, it was a, a major uh, loss for Guyana at the time. Um, and of course, the, the, the emigration continued into the 70s and 80s. And then, of course, the American uh, diaspora sort of uh, took a hold, right? Um, yeah. Now, so yeah. Let's, let's move from there and talk a bit about you were involved in uh, establishing the Islamic uh, Institute of Toronto. You established the ICRA newspaper. You established a, a print newspaper before that. You, and then you got involved with the National Muslim Christian Liaison Committee and a number of such interfaith community. How did you manage between the Islamic community and the, and the interfaith community given the fact that uh, people who do Islamic work, they don't always get the support when they want to do interfaith work. Well, this is, um, you know, and, and, and you appreciate this uh, in the interfaith field, is that we still have this struggle within uh, the Muslim community to get this understanding as to why interfaith is so important. You know, from a religious perspective, interfaith is important, as we know. You know, the justifications are there you know, that we must know each other, you know, the famous Quranic verse that we have been created in this plurality of uh, tribes and nations and men and women, uh, so that we may know, we may know each other. Yes. And this, um, you know, is the justification for us to go out. As well as, as people of religion, we, we know that, you know, we accept that we are recipients of the final revelation which, you know, uh, God, Allah states in the Quran is hudandinnas, uh, guidance for humanity. Right. And we are to be witnesses to humanity, you know, shihuda alannas. Uh, and the prophet, peace be on him, is described as rahmatulil alameen, as mercy to the world. Right. So the religious justification for interfaith is, is, is there for Muslims. But I think uh, what has happened is that the Muslim community, you know, as many immigrant communities tend to be insular. They think that they have to maintain the sort of uh, identity that they have, and they're more concentrated in doing that, as opposed to, you know, what is a mandate for us is to be witnesses to humanity, to be witness to our faith, to everyone, which means that interfaith becomes an important aspect of our work. Um, so I've always held this sort of universal understanding of Islam. You know, I grew up with this, that, you know, we are not here essentially just to be Muslim, but we are here to contribute to the society and to make the society a better place. You know, we have certain principles and values which intersect with other faith communities, you know, the universal values. And together, as faith communities, we are here to make the, the society a better place. Uh, but we have Did to get this Do you have any message. particular story where you were challenged and how you overcome that with the, uh, in, 
in promoting the interfaith dialogue, interfaith relations. As an example, you just recently sent a, a blitz for us to do khutbah across Canada, uh, remembering emancipation. Yeah. You were involved in the green khutbah so that imams could speak about the environment and climate change. Uh, so these are these are these are not these are very much interfaith, um, universal, social justice issues that you have undertaken and many others, but it doesn't get the same clout and the yep. same encouragement and the same support from the Muslim community. Like if you if if somebody if an imam is told, okay, go and speak about Hajj, go and speak about Ramadan. But it has changed, you know, because I. You know, I've done many of these campaigns. I did one on domestic violence, Muslim for White Ribbon. White Ribbon, yes. Um, the, the Green Kutba that you mentioned, and the indigenous one that uh, was about a month ago. Yeah, the indigenous uh, one. And this recent one about emancipation there. But you know, when I started doing this, I know, I know the first time I, I did this to get a campaign against domestic violence and for Muslims to start speaking about it in the Friday, in the Friday sermon, in the Friday khutbah. Yes. It was very difficult. You know, I was confronted. I know I have given many of these Friday khutbas where people would come to me and actually confront me on why we should be speaking about these things in the Friday sermons. But, you know, from 15 years ago to now, we have moved. Yes. Now, now we can speak about these things. So some of these things are very difficult uh, at the beginning, and some people don't see the relevance of it, but we have to keep, you know, pushing them, right? And the same with Emancipation Day, I, I you know, was sort of doing a survey to see what the uptake was, right? And how many imams actually did it. I, I can tell which imams would do it. I know which, who, who are the ones that would do it, right? Right. I have a list of the ones that are social activists and who are in tune with things happening in the community. Right. I know if I send it to them, they would do it. But then I, I, keep, I want to add to that list, right? I keep trying to push other people to get onto that list. And I think it's our responsibility, you know, by doing these things, we are pu pushing people to deal with the issues that affect all of us. Lovely. Because, um, you know, well, unless you we have on the it, call here today, Elizabeth yeah. Rahman, who's the founder of the Abraham Festival in Peterborough. And I think uh, if, it, if it hasn't happened as yet, uh, you will definitely be a chosen candidate to, to speak at the interfaith <laughs> festival in Peterborough for the very fact that for the last 15 years being involved with the festival, that has been the challenge. How do mm -hmm. you get the localized uh, Muslim leader to speak on such an important topic that is outside of their regular purview? But I have to continue, uh, Munib. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have joined us uh, or you'll be joining us, it's Munib Nasir, the founder of the Olive Tree Foundation writer of the Ikra newspaper, and of course, interfaith leader in the Muslim community, a khatib. He has represented the National Muslim Christian Liaison Committee. Now, Munib, I have attended that, uh, the, the meetings in Young Street, I think, uh, with Shirley and others on the, Father Damien was there, mm. were on the National Muslim Liaison Committee. Now, this is not your regular interfaith committee. This is national, mm. right? It's, it's ought to represent the umbrella of organizations and, and the Muslims of all the denominations and Christians of all denominations in Canada. Can you give me two highlights of your involvement with this committee? Given the fact that recently with Islamophobia, some Muslims still do not see that when one Muslim is attacked, every Muslim is attacked. 
when mm. recently there were there, we have sent out um, uh, petitions and condemnation when the Christian churches were attacked. And again, Christians, when one denomination is attacked, every Christian is attacked. So what mm. has been your, your, your highlight with this committee? Well, this is an important uh, platform, actually. It started in the 1980s. So it is probably the longest standing relationship between Christians and Muslims in this country. And it was started by some of the pioneers in the Muslim community, actually, uh, Moin Moinuddin and um, Dr. Sahin, who passed away. Right. Uh, you know, they were actually the, one of the founding members of, the, of this committee. So it, it kept going and has been going for this since the 1980s, which is quite exceptional. Yes. Um, it's, it's exceptional in the sense that we've been meeting at least four to five times a year um, for the last three, three and a half decades. Um, and it, it keeps going. And as you said, it's a national representative body where the Christian denominations from the major Protestant and Roman Catholic communities appoint representatives. So for instance, the Canadian Council of uh, Churches has a representative there, the Anglican Church, the United Church, uh, the Catholic community uh, surely is here, various uh, uh, segments of the Catholic community, uh, the Canadian Council of Catholic Bishops. So all of the major denominations are there. On the Muslim side, we have had more of a challenge in the sense that we don't have these national bodies that represent Muslims you know, we have Shaila who's here from the Islamic Relief. We have the Intercultural Dialogue Institute, which has been a regular um, attendee. The Canadian Council of Imams is there, but I must say, frankly, they have not been consistent. Um, but they are one of the members that's there. Um, so we have, you know, some of the major Muslim organizations who are there. Uh, Muslim Association of Canada um, is there. Maybe they didn't want to pay their fees. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's an important platform because, as you said, you know, uh, there, there are different levels of interfaith dialogue. There's a local level, which is quite important, where communities, you know, uh, churches and, and mosques or synagogues need to interact with each other at a local level. But there's also, you know, the representative body where we discuss issues that face us nationally and important issues. So NMCLC, as the National Muslim Christian Liaison Committee is known, um, you know, deals with these type of issues. You know, we have dealt with the environment, anti-racism. Right. You know, we have dealt with some of the key issues that affect both communities. And we can do it in a very frank way at that level because it's a bit of a more representative body. It's not at the local level. Lovely. So it, it's, it's quite an important committee. I appreciate that. I want to give Shirley a few minutes before she leaves to share with you any thoughts or questions. And then I'll come back to you to talk about the Olive Tree Foundation and at, at this time as well, I would like to acknowledge Alima Nasir, um, our amazing Muslim leader and um, uh, activist in Guyana who I've interviewed before. Um, so Alima, welcome. And I know you will have uh, something to say to Muni before we leave as well tonight. Go ahead, Shirley. This is a surprise. First of all, I am so grateful that uh, Shaila, you sent the notice that I could send out to the NMCLC members. And uh, Munib, you are definitely a witness of all that you were sharing. Um, the other important thing that touched me again, you're always so open and honest, Munib. And when you said that we all have to be a witness, everyone of whatever their faith tradition, 
And if they have no faith tradition, but they have values, good human values, they're people of goodwill. If each of us would live according to our conscience, where the divine presence lives, then we can be that witness and we can um, encourage each other to be better for the society we live in because the unity among all humanity, we're all children of God, all children of Allah, all children of Adam and Eve, um, and the diversity is what gives us our strength, that we don't become carbon copies of each other, but we encourage each other to be the best human being we can be and treasure our individual scriptures, which we share with each other, which is always enriching. So thank you for the gift of having had this time with all of you. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you, uh, Shirley. Shirley is our recording secretary of NMCLC, and she's from the Fokulari movement, which is uh, quite a, an interesting movement if you haven't uh, um, uh, known about them before. They're an international movement that does ex excellent interfaith work. Um, I know they take, uh, they have uh, conferences in Rome, and I was unable to attend the last one, but I hope in the future I get an invitation again, uh, surely to go. <laughs> um, but they do some exceptional work uh, around the world between Christians and Muslims, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I heard about them when I was at the Vatican, so, and at the Parliament of World Religions as well. Okay, next. Uh, so, Muneeb, thank you, Shirley. Um, uh, how I remember I was there with Uncle Akbar and Sadro and others when you first established the Olive Tree Foundation. What was your inspiration behind that? And now that after so many years it has blossomed and flourished and helped give out scholarship. Tell us some of the things that tell us some of the things that you um, you have achieved uh, briefly with the Olive Tree Foundation. Well, the Olive Tree Foundation came out of, um, you know, uh, a need in the Muslim community. You know, as you know, most of our uh, funding comes from direct donations from individuals. And uh, most of the funding tends to go to either mosque or relief work. And the development of our community is being stunted as a result. You know, we don't have the sources of um, funding. Um, so the Olive Tree Foundation is a, an endowment uh, foundation that we started about 15 years ago. Essentially, it functions as um, an endowment where uh, donors um, make donations, establishing you know, family funds, and the returns from those donations are then used to fund projects. So we are funding projects that would not necessarily be funded by the traditional mosque or relief agency. So as an example, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, uh, Dean Support Services or the Canadian Association of Muslims with Disabilities. Right. So we sort of seed funded that organization to form um, essentially to where they are today and they've become highly successful. Uh, the other uh, one that you may be aware of is Tessellate Institute. Right. You know, we have funded them in the early stages to establish themselves. So we are looking essentially to seed fund uh, projects that uh, help in the development of the community. Of course, we don't fund only within the Muslim community. Yes. We fund outside of the Muslim community as well. 
you know, we funded many, some interfaith projects. You know, we recently funded Faith and the Common Good for a couple of projects. Right. Um, so we have funded some interfaith projects as well. And uh, we have funded, for instance, the Bo Boy Scouts of Candle, um, you know, things that they are doing. Uh, they had a diversity interfaith, uh, intercultural uh, DVD that they were going to produce um, to sort of encourage uh, young people to join scouting. And we funded that. So we, we fund outside of the Muslim community as well. Essentially, you know, we are, we are looking to diversify the funding uh, streams. And we thought this was one way of doing it. And it has a, a, a history within the Islamic uh, civilization where this uh, system of awqaf or waqf or endowments was quite uh, important in the uh, development of the Islamic civilization. So, you know, it's, it's a, essentially a pilot project because we are the only one doing it to this extent. We'll wait until you get unfrozen. Public for 